if you would be turning to Haggai. That book nestles not far from the end of the Old Testament. I believe that'd be book 37 in the Old Testament. And yet, that little two-chapter book is so rich in its presentation and so powerful in the lessons that you and I have already been able to mine from that little book. As you can tell by the slide, this is a third installment in a series of lessons on this little book, and it will be the last lesson on, on this little book as well. By way of introduction, this in many ways will be a bit of a reminder. The first two lessons that we considered together began by highlighting verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1 in which God thunderously through the prophet Haggai told the people, Consider your ways. It was needful for those living then to give careful analysis and thought so that they would make sure to be living according to what God would have them to do. You and I know that those same words of wisdom would come our way today. Consider your ways. But after we highlighted that thought in chapter number 1, we drew several applications because didn't verse number 7 tell us that they, in fact, had earned wages and were putting them in a bag with holes. And what an image to go to the trouble of working and investment, but yet to have it so misdirected and so misplaced that you're wasting your efforts. And yet the people of Haggai's day were doing that very thing. Our second lesson took us to a section of chapter number 2, wherein we appreciated then that there were some national problems. The people of God were suffering mightily, and yet God rather carefully and rather directly told them, these things didn't come upon you because of accidental circumstances. The cause of it is not mere happenstance. I brought it on you. There's no dew. I caused there to be none. The rain has not been coming. I'm the one that caused it. Furthermore, your crops have failed as a consequence of these things, and so we wrestled with the idea, the understanding that they were having problems that God was causing them. All in an effort to shake them up so that they would redirect their priorities and serve God appropriately. But the final lesson of the series will take us again to chapter number 2. And this time, as we come to this next slide, what we shall do is cast a first spotlight on the opening nine verses of chapter number 2. I'd like to read them in your hearing, and then we'll make several observations about them and construct a lesson around it. Verse 1, chapter 2, begins like this. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once, 
it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the glory than the, than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. A bit of background will be very meaningful to us. And so it really will not take that long to solidify that appreciation. And it has been my effort to try and do that on the slide that's now before you. It all begins in the opening verses of chapter number 2 with this observation. You and I saw it in the opening lesson of the series. The people had come back from the captivity in Babylon, and they had come back with the necessity of rebuilding the temple and worshiping appropriately. However, after they came back to the Jerusalem area, they met with enemies, and their priorities were misplaced, and hence they didn't complete the temple as they should have. They started it. They laid its foundation. But then, due to these other matters which they allowed to interfere, they never completed it at, the, at that point. God stirred up these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and He sent them to the people to stir them up so that they again would be motivated with incentive to complete the temple to finish the work that they had begun. But as you can see on that slide, there was something that became evident very, very quickly. All I need to do is ask you to observe the question that was asked. Verse number 3, Haggai chapter 2. Who was left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Keep in mind, it had not been that long. Now, admittedly, many people had passed away, but there were still some who were old enough to remember what the temple had looked like in Solomon's day. They had seen it before Nebuchadnezzar had burned it to the ground, 2 Kings 25, 9. They had seen it before it had been destroyed in essence. Can't you and I all easily appreciate that Solomonic temple was extravagant. Remember all of the silver, the fine wood, the gold that had been utilized in its construction? You might want to revisit 1 Kings chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, where we have a record, at least in part, of the ornateness of that temple. How that Solomon spared no expense. The finest of wood and metal and silver and gold had been used in its construction, and it truly must have been something to behold. Well, needless to say, these individuals who have come out of captivity in their effort to build this second temple, if you please, they didn't have anywhere near that kind of money. They had no access to silver and gold in that abundance. They had no access to the various woods and the other fine matters. And so surely, to anyone who had seen that first temple, this second one must have looked very inferior. It must have looked much less extravagant, much less ornate. It is for that reason, notice again the question of verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? 
And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as nothing? It would be much like you and I today. A rich person in, say, California or Hollywood or some other professional athlete might be able to build a multi-million dollar house. None of us can do that. And so any house you and I would fund and build in comparison might well be almost seen as nothing. It would appear that that kind of attitude was beginning to trouble some of the people. That first temple was so grand and perhaps even Zerubbabel the leader and Jehozadak the high priest, it would seem, began to be troubled. This house looks so inferior to the former. Will God be pleased with it? Will it satisfy that which would be His will? I suppose in some respects those are fair questions. It is into that circumstance we find the message of God to the people. It's what I just read in your hearing. Did God give any indication He was displeased with what they were capable of doing? Did He give any indication He was not going to be satisfied with this second temple once they had it completed? May I again point out to you verse 4. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. If you begin to listen to those who, as older gentlemen, maybe they say, Zerubbabel, why are we even working on this? It looks so pitiful. It looks so unsatisfactory. God surely won't be pleased with this. Do you remember what the former one must have looked like? And yet, into that circumstance, God, through Haggai, told Zerubbabel, Will you be strong? And to Jehozadak, verse number 4, You too, you be strong, and all the people who are laboring on this temple... Don't you allow the comparison of that former one to distract and deter your work so that you do not finish this one. Finally, that verse closes by saying, I am with you. God was going to be pleased with this temple, though it wasn't like the former one. It wasn't nearly as expensive, extravagant, and ornate. But look even further than this. Verse number 5, According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth with you. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, remember how little they had then. They had been slaves. They had been forced rather rigorously to engage in hard and very difficult labor, and they had so little materialistically. They had to borrow from the Egyptians as in fact they left the country. But yet they were God's people. He led them through that wilderness wandering, and due to their disbelief and due to their disobedience, they of course found themselves in difficult conditions. But God says, My covenant was with you, and your obedience was what was critical. Maybe it is into that circumstance we come near the close of that slide. Because beginning in verse number 6, God makes a very interesting statement. I've even used the word, a monumental event is referenced. May I read it again? For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. 
through the prophet Haggai, the God of heaven, made reference. He was going to shake not only that nation, but all nations. And he even referenced it as a shaking of the heavens, of the earth, of the sea. I wonder what the overwhelming event to which God referred was. Was it some literal earthquake that was going to shake the entirety of earth? I'd suggest to you he wasn't talking about an earthquake. He wasn't talking about some literal event in which the surface, if you please, of this planet undergoes a vibration or a literal shaking like that. But rather what you can appreciate is, ultimately, as we'll see shortly, he identifies what he meant by this. Let's transition to the next slide, and let's develop it like this. May I do so in conjunction with the last few verses of chapter 2. Now, I realize there are a few verses in between that were part of our lesson last time, but the closing four verses of the book seemingly mesh together beautifully with that which we've studied already. Let me read these verses, and then let's proceed in our lesson. And again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet. For I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. What an interesting presentation. One more time, reference was made to a shaking, and we notice here a few more details about it are given, and I'm going to point out a few things that I hope will help us appreciate some of the details of this presentation. This shaking of the heavens and the earth. You may notice that it was going to be something that was an overwhelming event. All nations were going to experience at least the consequence of it. And not only that, you notice no material force would be able to stand against it. Chariots, armies, whatever it were, were going to be, would not be able to overwhelm it, to change it, or in any way cause it to be different than what God intended it to be. That kind of grandeur and that kind of presentation takes you to the middle of that slide. Did you notice with me as we read, and I've asked you to notice several particular pieces, one of which was it involved the desire of all nations. That's what God said. Furthermore, it made relation to peace from God. That is to say, it would be the ultimate and final presentation and enjoyment of peace which all in the human family should have a desire to understand. And finally, it was even noted to be correlated to the choosing of Zerubbabel as a signet. I basically selected those pieces and then asked you to note this with me. What is the feature? What is the fulfillment of this? May I suggest that it points to Jesus Christ. In other words, the prophet Haggai, writing these hundreds of years prior to the literal coming of Christ to this planet, is such that 
housed within this description, it pointed to the blessing of the kingdom of the Son of God. And that blessing I've invited you to consider like this. Isn't it true in Isaiah 2, the law would go forth from Jerusalem and all nations would flow into it. Well, through Haggai, God had said it would be the desire of all nations. Anybody, anywhere can be a servant to God. You can become a member of that wonderful kingdom of God known as the church and serve God acceptably. Remember that the people of Judah, they of course enjoyed that land of Canaan. But today, there is no, quote, holy territory on earth. Not only that, look at that next observation. Isn't it true that the Scriptures themselves testify that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? Isaiah 9, verse 6. It is in that passage. He is expressly called the Prince of Peace, and in His own words, in John 14, 26 and 7, as well as John 16, 33, Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. In the world you should have tribulation, but be not afraid. I have overcome the world. Isn't it significant then that the connection to peace is a reminder of what Israel was hoping to one day enjoy from Haggai's time? One last observation. The choosing of Zerubbabel as a signet. It's a bit interesting as you look again at the reading of verse 23 of chapter 2. God affirmed that He was to choose as a signet Zerubbabel. And when you and I turn to Matthew 1 verse 12, we find something fantastic. Zerubbabel was one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. In other words, the line which would ultimately emanate in the coming of the Christ included Zerubbabel. And so that line was chosen just as God had stated that it would be. And the blessedness of it certainly pointed to the interesting place that Zerubbabel held. Maybe now as you and I close that slide, it will point us to the idea that will lead us through the rest of this lesson takes you back to chapter 2. You may notice again in verse number 9, God said something that must to those people have seemed impossible. May I again ask you to note, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. We already have noted in this lesson, Solomon had access to so much money and fine jewels and finery in many ways, and he could make that temple truly exquisite. These people didn't have that kind of money, and they didn't have that kind of access. How could God have told those people without any, any other piece of information... How could he have truthfully told them the glory of this one will be greater than the glory of the Solomon one? How could that have been? May I suggest that it relates to what we've already studied. Notice again, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Could I invite you to consider this? Jesus Christ never walked in the temple Solomon built. The Lord had never come to this planet at that time. And then again, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. But this one that they rebuilt, this one that was prompted by the efforts of Zerubbabel and Joshua, this one that to them must have seemed so inferior, may I ask, did Jesus walk in that one? 
did the grandeur and the greatness of the Son of God emanate in the reality of that man, that Son of God, literally walking in the beauty of that temple. We know the Lord walked in it. Several records in the New Testament point us to the fact that Jesus, on occasion, became very upset by what some of the things were taking place. He certainly visited it. He came to it in person. He came to appreciate what it was that was involved in it. As far as some applications, or at least lessons, that can be meaningful to us, let's begin with this one. I've entitled it, The Danger of Living in the Past. I suppose that all of us on occasion have recollections of the good old days. And maybe in our life, we focus almost exclusively on that which once was. Maybe it was something that was in our life, or maybe it was something that was true of the community then. Or maybe it was something that was true of some other aspect of life. Quite often, memories are very special, and they can be very moving and very compelling. But by the same token, may I offer this thought. In the same way that those people can't just live in the past and think about the Solomonic Temple, you've got to finish this one, and it's going to be great. And I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and the glory of this one will be greater than of that former one may I say that you and I will accomplish typically very little for the Lord if we only live in the past. Because everything, of course, will fail in comparison to how great our memory would testify the past was. Isn't it typically true that we have selective memories? We remember what was good. We remember what was especially appreciable to us. But we don't always remember the bad times that were also a part of the past. We often do not remember much about the difficulties, the tribulations, and the challenges we faced. But what we do again selectively remember is what was so pleasant and what was so peaceful and what was so comfortable. May we cherish those memories, but may we not just live in the past. Could I invite you to look at some of these verses? Paul put it like this in... Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Did he not with such power make references like this one? Forgetting those things that are in the past and reaching forth unto that which is now before us, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. May I at least suggest that as we use the past in a profitable way, we don't just live in it. For we understand we live in the present. And we should strive thus to make it as God would wish it to be by employing ourselves in the way that He would have us to do it. This danger of living in the past, you see, was causing the people trouble. They knew they couldn't build a temple that looked as ornate as that first one, and it would seem some of them were becoming discouraged. Have you ever become, become discouraged? I can't do what my daddy did. Or perhaps I cannot live in an environment much like my grandparents did, some might say. And therefore, perhaps they seem to give up, or at least to feel a bit of hopelessness. It was noted this morning as one of our prayers, I think Brother Gary led us in it, that there does seem at this moment to be such turmoil that is raging rampantly in our world 
may we appreciate the fact previous generations had their turmoils as well. It wasn't always a pandemic, and it wasn't always some other particular thing, but sometimes it was world wars. Sometimes it was other national catastrophes. Sometimes it was very great matters in illness. Whatever it may have been, may we appreciate the past also had its troubles. And therefore, may we not use simply a vision to where we forget about all of those challenges as well. Let's close that slide like this. Paul gave this interesting lesson for us beginning in 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 16. He pointed out rather beautifully and also rather strongly that the particulars of the day is such that we certainly long and desire to serve God. And we do so recognizing that what's here is only temporary. We look for what's eternal. And the opening verse of chapter 5 of that book would say that if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. That kind of truth brings us to a second lesson. One that I've entitled like this. There is something to be said for the faithfulness of God as exhibited in the book of Haggai. This people had been in captivity. It may have appeared that God had cast them off and that He was no longer interested or concerned about them. They had spent 70 years in captivity and yet all the while, he still had a will for them to occupy, and he still had work for them to do. And when they came back, he was interested enough in them that he punished them when they failed. May we never think that God doesn't care. May we never think He's uninterested. May we never think that His faithfulness has lapsed. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 still tells us, God is faithful. He will always be true to His Word. He will always be true to His will. The failures come not from Him. It comes from us. Our failure to follow that which He's told and given us and to enjoy the blessings and benefits from it. For that reason, look at some of these considerations. I've asked you to notice the number of years involved here. Did you notice God said, the glory of this house, the one that those people were then constructing, will be greater than the glory of the former. How long did it take before the fulfillment of Christ walking in that temple area? If you check the numbers, you'll find it was well over half a millennium. It would be over 500 years before Jesus would walk in the temple that they were then constructing might you and I notice Zerubbabel, Joshua, the others didn't live to appreciate the reality of it. But it came to pass. And today, may we also rest and wonderfully rely upon God's faithfulness. He will take care of His children. That kind of confidence means a great deal. In the midst of chaos in the minds of others, as others run to and fro in a very frenetic way, the Christian can be anchored in the steadfast truth that whatever comes to pass, we are in the safekeeping of the God of heaven. 
And that safety, at least at this point, must have meant so much to the people of Haggai's day that what they were doing was significant and this temple was going to be great. Not because of the gold and silver that was in it, but because of what it would stand for and because of what would take place within it. One final thing on that slide. God's faithfulness has been echoed throughout the Word of God in ways that are very memorable. I mentioned the flood of Noah's day and how that then God placed a bow in the clouds as a continuing symbol that I will never again destroy the earth by water. And we understand He's kept that promise now for well over 5,000 years. He's kept it that long. And surely, the consideration of that idea brings us to the closing section, if you please, of our lesson tonight. I've entitled it an earth-shaking event. I know we've mentioned it in passing, and we've looked at several times when God rather dramatically stated, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, what might well be a powerful meaning to that? I've developed it, as you can see on that slide. We hinted at it earlier. Would you give some thought with me to the gospel for just a minute? Everybody, everywhere, is subject to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once the new covenant had come into place, once the Master had died at Calvary, and once His will came into effect on the day of Pentecost... There is now no opportunity for some other approach to God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. And so it is that everyone everywhere talk about an earth-shaking event. The kingdoms of men, they may rise and fall. The kingdoms of men, they come and they go. The fads and fancies of man seemingly develop and then just as quickly pass away. But this to which he referred was this grand earth-shaking event and all everywhere would lastingly be subject to it. Today, you and I live 2,000 years this side of Calvary. And yet the gospel is as needful, as required, and as necessary now as it has ever been since, since that early day. And as, of course, it shall be until the end of time. No wonder in that connection, look at this verse in Acts 4 verse 12. As you know, we live in the last days. And in that particular passage, Peter so wonderfully said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I would suggest that it is a rather fantastic truth. And it was stated to many of the prophets like Daniel when he saw the image crushed as the stone rolled into the feet area of it, that stone became the kingdom that filled the whole earth. The church, you see, everywhere is needful. On land, on sea. There isn't a person on earth anywhere that can get to heaven without it. The earth-shaking event is that God put in place a new covenant and it's universal. It doesn't depend on culture. It doesn't depend on ethnicity. It doesn't depend on historical character of individual, but everybody has the same requirement. 
Acts 15, 9 reminds us then, all must do the same thing. As we close our study of the book of Haggai, we certainly could rather quickly try to summarize many of the features of this lesson, perhaps as briefly as this. We have seen the two temples, and the people no doubt were feeling discouraged. The one we're building is so inferior, but God quickly tried to put to rest their concern. I will be with you, and the glory of this one will be greater than of the former. And as we've studied that tonight, we've learned that the earth-shaking event to which he referred was the coming of the Christ and the gospel message he brought, and the kingdom that would be universal in character. But surely in that connection, we also have found the beauty of the danger that's ours if we only live in the past. The faithfulness of our God is truly a magnificent thing. It might well be tonight that in this audience, there might be someone who isn't faithful to the Lord. That though at one time you were, you've allowed yourself to be such that you've lived in a way that you know isn't exactly right. Your priorities have been mixed up. Maybe the service in the church has just become a habit, a ritual. You go through the motions, but your heart really isn't in it. Just like the prophet Ezekiel, who told the people, your heart's not in it. That was a problem for them. It can be one for us. Jesus said we must love the Lord with all of our heart, and all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our strength. Mark 12, verse 30. Tonight, if someone would be in a position that you would have a desire to come back to your first love. How much we would enjoy praying for you and to be a part of assisting you in returning to a place of steadfast faithfulness. If we could help you in any way with that tonight, by way of taking note of your repentance and confession, we'd be happy to pray for you. If we could do that, would you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.